The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, during the season of Advent, as Aaron has already mentioned, we're reflecting on the first coming of Jesus. And we're doing a, t- a teaching series called The Everlasting Wonder. And I've realized that this is a thing people are now like writing books and doing sermon series where they take a line from a Christmas song. I think there's an Advent book called The Weary World Rejoices. Apparently it's a thing. And we did that thing too because we named the series The Everlasting Wonder, which is taken from a hymn which says, This the Everlasting Wonder, Christ was born the Lord of all. And what we said last week is over the next several weeks, we want to remember Jesus' first coming and we just want to revel and the story of Jesus' birth. I want to take a look at several passages in the New Testament that talk about the meaning of this literally wonderful event, the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh and being born as a man. Last Sunday we said that if we're going to talk about God becoming a man, it makes sense for us to talk about what man actually is. What is it that Jesus came to take on and restore in us? What is man? What does it even mean to be human? And tonight we're going to consider something an ancient theologian called Athanasius Something he called the divine dilemma. The divine dilemma. Now, let me ask you this. When was the last time you found yourself in a real pickle? Like a real pinch? A situation where you were really in between a rock and a hard place. Not just a hard decision. Like I was telling somebody earlier, um, I bumped into somebody that I hadn't seen in a couple of months, actually walking over here and navigating the parade traffic, and they commented on my mustache. And they said they were glad to see my mustache. And I said, I'm glad to hear that you like the mustache. It's been a controversial topic in my house and amongst my friends. And uh, not least with, with my wife. She tells me she likes the way it looks, but she doesn't like to touch it. Kind of leaves me in a strange position, right? So I'm not talking about something as trivial as what to do about your stash. I'm talking about a kind of gridlock where there's no obvious good answer. A real dilemma. When was the last time you found yourself in a situation like that? Well, St. Athanasius, in his book on the Incarnation, describes what he calls the divine dilemma. He says that the scriptures teach that God loved humanity into existence, that God made us from and for love. There was, there was no need for us, and the only explanation as to why God created us was because God is love. God made us just kind of pouring out of his graciousness and generosity. We saw last week in Psalm 8 that we are crowned with glory and honor, unlike anything else in God's world. We, re- we possess a dignity that is unparalleled in creation. We've been granted a dignity to reflect God's glory and honor, but we've also been given a duty to abide, uh, to abide rather in God's blessedness as his creatures, to exercise dominion on his behalf. And part of our duty is to enjoy God as creator, which means respecting the limits that he places on us, the boundaries that he gives us out of love. Specifically in the the Genesis account, he tells humanity to eat of every tree but one. Because if you eat of this tree, you'll die. And if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, you know exactly what takes place. Mankind rebels. Mankind does not do as God commands us. And there's this great tragedy of the capital F, fall. There is the fall of man. Man rebels and falls from grace. And it's truly a tragedy because of what God intends for us to be. What God intends for us to do. We were made to know and enjoy God and to look like him and to reflect him to his good world, to exercise dominion over his good world, but instead we chose a life apart from him. And it's a tragedy. 
And this is the dilemma as Athanasius describes it. I have it on the screen. He says, Man, who was created in God's image and in his possession of reason reflected the very word himself was disappearing and the work of God was being undone. The law of death, which followed from the transgression, the fall, prevailed upon us and from it there was no escape. The thing that was happening was in truth both monstrous and unfitting. So saying, considering what it is that we were made for, to bear God's image, it's monstrous and unfitting that death and corruption and sin would now be introduced into the picture. He continues. It would, of course, have been unthinkable that God should go back upon his word. In other words, if you eat of the tree, lest you die. It's unthinkable that God should go back upon his word and that man, having transgressed, should not die. But it was equally monstrous that beings which once had shared the nature of the word should perish and turn back again into non-existence through corruption. He says it's it's unthinkable that God could backpedal and kind of recant on his command that he gave. If you eat of the tree, you should die. And he says it's also just as unthinkable the tragedy of what's taking place here. What we were made for and made to be. To know, enjoy, and reflect God. And yet, we're corrupt. What then was God being good to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning? Surely it would have been better never to have been created at all than having been created to be neglected and perish. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his very eyes would argue not goodness in God, but limitation. And that far more than if he had never created men at all. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. Athanasius says we've got this pickle, this dilemma that's introduced to us in the early chapters of the scriptures. We were created for God and for glory, and yet we've rebelled. God can't just backpedal on these commands. In fact, God's goodness requires that he addresses sin. But he's also built us for himself to know, to love, and enjoy him. So what's God to do? What can be done? God can't break his word. He must address sin. But God made us to be near to him and to enjoy him. This is the divine dilemma. We could summarize it like this. The divine dilemma. God loves us and loved us into existence. But God must keep his word and deal justice towards sin. How can this be resolved? In the letter to the church at Rome, Paul the Apostle an early missionary and theologian, deals with this very dilemma brilliantly. It's the passage that Will read a moment ago and the passage that we're going to look at at once again. Let's look again at Romans chapter 3. We'll start in the second half of verse 22. Romans chapter 3, 22b. Paul writes, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He starts by saying there is no distinction that all have sinned. Last week, one of the things that we discussed from Psalm chapter 8 is the profoundly democratic nature of the Christian faith. We said it was last week when we were talking about the glory and dignity that humanity possesses, that this is, a, this is about all people, all ages, all, all income statuses, all ethnicities, uh, all intellectual levels, you know, whatever it is, all people possess dignity. It's an extremely important and profound democratic aspect of our faith. But there's also another profoundly democratic aspect of our faith. 
that apart from Christ, we are all equally cut off from life with God, subject to corruption and death. Or, as the way Paul says it, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter essentially arguing that Jew and Gentile alike stand condemned before God regardless of their ethnic heritage. Paul wants to shoot down the, the, the assumption that because the Jews were given the law and the Gentiles weren't given the law, that the Gentiles are off the hook. In fact, Paul builds this case that just by the, the very fact of conscience itself, those who didn't even receive the law stand condemned. Think about this. Does everybody have iPhones, majority of us? Some of you have the green text bubbles, and I know who you are. But the, major- the normal ones among us, we have iPhones, right? Have you ever gone into your iPhone and tried to delete Safari? Can you delete Safari from your iPhone? It is a fool's errand. Maybe there's a bin. You probably know a way to get to it. I don't know if she shrugs. I don't know, black web or whatever, whatever it is you know about. But the thing about Safari is it's here to stay. And what Paul argues in Romans chapter 1 and 2 is that we have an internal moral compass that we cannot squelch. There's, in other words, there's nothing we can do to uninstall it. It's like Safari. And we're always, each of us, every person, every soul, who has ever been born, is always evaluating others on the basis of that moral compass. It's inescapably so. We are constantly indexing people on a matrix of right and wrong and just and unjust and fair and unfair and good and bad. And we do this beginning at our earliest years. This impulse is consistent across all times, places, and people groups. All of us have some sense of right and wrong. But there's also another sense that we have. Part of being created in God's image is, is that we're uniquely moral creatures. It's like no matter how much you like your dog or your cat, they're not moral like you are, a moral creature. But we also have this nagging sense that we don't live up to our own moral standards. That if we were to index ourselves on our moral compass, we would find ourselves wanting. And it's like, sure, I mean, we're good at justifying our stuff. We always have good reasons for why we're sinning. But at the end of the day, we know that we fall short of, our, of even our own standards. We feel the weight of our wrongdoing, or as the Bible calls it, sin. And Paul argues this point in Romans 1 and 2. He says this is the case for everybody. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the standard. We were made for life with and before God. We rejected and disobeyed God, and all humanity is implicated in this. Adam did it as our father, as our representative, and we behave in kind, just like him. Paul says there's no distinction. It's true for all of us. Now, what's really interesting about this, and this might sound a little backwards for a second, but the democratic nature of the fall is actually kind of a beautiful truth. It's actually kind of a beloved doctrine of the Christian faith. I read about this 18th, 18th rather century preacher, revivalist guy who preached the need for us to repent and believe the gospel. And there's a story of him receiving the equivalent of an 18th century strongly worded email from a British countess. He talked about the need for all people, regardless of who you are, kind of where you fall on the map, to repent and believe in Jesus. We all need Jesus. And he received a letter from this countess that said, it is monstrous to be told you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. Sounds like a Disney character, right? This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. You think about the alternative. Like the scriptures say, all of us are implicated in this. Think about what the alternative is. The alternative is to say that there are people who are inherently more righteous on the basis of their race, their wealth, 
their privilege, whatever else. And that is repulsive. And so there's actually a, a kind of compelling quality to the democratic nature of the fall that Paul outlines here. We are all guilty, all of us. No matter where we're born and no matter what we were born with, no matter what base we were born on, we were all, we're all guilty of this. We talk often about the good news of the gospel, but the good news of the gospel includes bad news first. All have sinned, he says, all fall short of the glory of God. Now this for me is a really interesting phrase to say that we've fallen short of the glory of God, especially in light of what we talked about last week and what we've said repeatedly even this evening, that we were made for glory. We were, we were made from God's glory and for God's glory and to reflect God's glory. We were made to see and enjoy and reflect God's glory. We were crowned with glory and honor. We were given dignity. We were to abide in his blessedness. We were to exercise dominion on his behalf. You know, all this really amazing stuff. But in choosing sin, we find ourselves living short of God's glory, falling short of the glory of God. What I think Paul is saying here isn't just that there's a standard that we haven't met. I think Paul is also telling us there is a great privilege and opportunity we've forfeited. It's a glorious life we've renounced. We were made for God's glory, and in our sin, we fall short of that glory. We've chosen to be exiled from the garden, in other words. And again, the fall is truly a tragedy because of what we were meant to be. We were built for glory, and yet we choose all that isn't glorious. And really, if you think about it, I mean, we, we take all of these unique abilities and, and these powers that God has given us, and we use it for exactly things that aren't glorious. These amazing gifts given to us by God, and we use them for evil. There's this paradoxical principle. We, it's in, uh, Lewis talks about it in Mere Christianity. He says that the more power for good and for beauty and creativity you have, the more power you have for heinous evil and wrongdoing. There's this famous passage from Brothers Karamazov. It's this Russian novel written in the 19th century. Uh, the, 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 uh, one of the characters in the story is talking about kind of the unique cruelty that humans seem to possess. He says when you see these, this, this kind of bestial behavior, you know, awful behavior that you say is like animal-like in people, he says it's actually an insult to the beasts. He says it's an insult to the beasts because they tear and devour by instinct. Beasts could never be cruel. But humans, we have the ability to be cruel. We take all of our artistic and creative energy given to us by God and we use it for evil. The same technology that allows us to power our cities and hospitals and homes, we used to annihilate Hiroshima and Nagasaki. God made us to be capable of deep and profoundly beautiful relationships and we use that power to manipulate people and violate trust and stab our friends in the back. It's a, what we are is a tragedy in light of what God intended us to be. And so what does God to do? He, he made us for glory, but we've inverted it and we've turned that towards evil ends. What kind of God would let corruption run amok and win the day and ruin his image bearers? God must act and he must address sin. It's true to his nature. He has to do something about this. But we also know this about God's nature. God is gracious and he's a gift-giving God and he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So what's the answer to the dilemma? Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Paul tells us that God makes us right by a gracious gift, that he addresses our sin problem through grace. He he can't just overlook it. So what does he do? What is the gift? It's Jesus, he says, verse 24 and 25. Jesus. Redemption in Jesus whom God put forward as propitiation. There's a couple of big words in there we're going to pause on and sort of think about. This is like the chocolate lava cake kind of equivalent of (laughs) Paul's writings. Three big words that we're going to look at it really briefly. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Verse 24, he says, we're justified by his grace as a gift. Now, justification essentially means we're made right or declared not guilty. We're righteousified, you might say. We're made righteous. We're made righteous as a gift. God declares us not guilty as a gift. He looks on us, and because he's a God of gift and of graciousness, he declares his people not guilty. But he can't just scrub the deck clean. He can't just wipe away our sins. Something has to be done about that, right? That's where the word propitiation comes in. Propitiation, verse 25 told that God puts forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation simply means to satisfy or appease the demands of a God. God's justice must be satisfied. He must judge our evil. And so God, the Son, is sent by God the Father to take on humanity, to stand in humanity's place on the cross, and be judged for humanity's wickedness. So we're made right. Our, our, our status is declared not guilty because Christ died for us as a propitiation for our sins. And all of this is sort of wrapped up in the idea of redemption. Redemption. To be redeemed is to be bought back from slavery, to be welcomed back to our rightful home, place, and relationships. And so what Paul says here is through Jesus, and specifically through Jesus' death on the cross, our sins are forgiven, they're dealt with, they're judged, so that we could be redeemed and restored back to God who is our Father. God's righteousness is expressed in judgment, Paul tells us. His wrath is made known on the cross of Christ, where his wrath is satisfied. So again, to not punish our sin would be a compromise in God's very goodness. It would be against his nature. And so God judges our sin completely, utterly. He empties his chambers of divine judgment that we deserve on Christ. Hear me, Christian. God's divine judgment was poured onto the shoulders of someone else for you. Jesus. Jesus died for you. That's one reason it's absolutely essential that the writers of the scriptures establish that Jesus is actually human. It's important that Jesus is human so that he can actually stand in place of humanity. Like really consider for a second the flesh and blood human Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus had to become like us in every respect so that he could redeem us, so that he could die in our place. In verse 26, Paul tells us how the divine dilemma is solved. Verse 26. The incarnation, the coming of Jesus to take on humanity and die on a cross in our place. All of this was to show It was to make loud and amazingly, gloriously clear God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
in Jesus, we see that God is both just and justifier. God is just and that he does something about the problem we've introduced. Sin and death and corruption, he judges it on the shoulders of Jesus. But he's justifier because he makes us righteous. He declares us righteous on the basis of Christ's death for us so that communion with him can be restored. So what can we say? How, how is the divine dilemma resolved? We say it like Athanasius did and, and we give Paul's answer. Jesus. The answer to the divine dilemma is Jesus. The incarnate God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate. He was buried and he's dead. His body was broken and delivered over for us so that we could be restored to what God has always intended us to be as his image bearers. Jesus is the answer to the divine dilemma. And it's one of those things, as you reflect on the story of the incarnation and the cross, the more you read it and reflect on it, it's like, this is always the way that it had to be. This is always the way that it had to be. And you see God's amazing imagination and storytelling ability and working it out the way that he did. It's perfect. It's so brilliant. It's so incredibly good. Jesus dies for our sin and undoes the grip of death on our race. And as a result, he opens up life with God and shows us what it means to be human. And he, and he works in us, present tense, piece by piece, in us to restore the glory of what it means to be human. He works to restore that in us, his church, his new humanity. Elsewhere you'll read Paul say things like, there's, 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 you can either be in Adam or in Christ. You can either be of the kind that is Adam, those who are subject to death or corruption, or we can, by faith, be welcomed into Christ and receive all that belongs to Christ, his name and his inheritance and his glory and his righteousness, and it's accessed, verse 26 of chapter three in Romans, by faith. The answer to the divine dilemma is Jesus. Don't we all know that we were meant for something more than what we currently experience? Don't we know that we are not operating at full capacity? Scriptures tell us that Jesus came to restore us and unlock for us what God has always intended us to be as his image bearers. I think we can respond in two ways. The first way is this. Believe and rejoice in the everlasting wonder. Believe and rejoice in the everlasting wonder. Redemption is offered us to be received by faith. We don't, we don't conjure up enough good deeds to get God to uh, uh, overlook our sin. That's just, that's, it can't operate that way. We're subject to corruption and death and we're locked into this. It requires something from the outside to break us free. And we receive that by faith in Christ. We are justified, made right, forgiven of our sins by belief. And be encouraged by this. Our sins, our state did not keep Christ from us. In fact, our state was the very thing that moved Jesus to take on flesh to redeem his people. Jesus doesn't begrudgingly embrace us through gritted teeth. If I have to, I guess I will. Jesus came for sinners knowing full well that it would mean his death. Christ loves us and came to redeem us, came to restore us. Christian, those songs that we sang a bit ago, I happened to notice as we were singing them, um, 
all three of them sort of had the theme of angels singing out, right? Angels you have heard on high, hark the herald angels sing, a holy night, you know, hear the angels singing. And it's providential that we're going to read this passage. But something that's so great to me is that we've got an angle on who God is that not even the angels could possess. Like, sure, the angels have existed for a really long time and they exist in heaven with God. But we've got an angle on God's goodness that the angels could not even begin to wrap their brains around. Jesus was born to fix us. Not the angels, us. We are God's favorite, according to Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, I have it on the screen. The author writes, Since therefore the children, all y'all, us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus became like us because he loves us and he wanted to save us. Let's believe and rejoice in the everlasting wonder. Let's marvel at the incredible story that is the birth of Christ, the Christ child in the nativity. Let's believe in this and look on it and enjoy it during this season. But here's a second way I think that we can respond to these scriptures. This will be a theme that we'll revisit again throughout this series. Let's learn to see holiness as glory being restored in us. Let's learn to see holiness as glory being restored in us. And when we talk about holiness, we're not, we're not just talking about not doing Fun, like fun things. We're not, just, we're not just talking about not doing, like you're restricted from the thing that you want access to. Instead, the, the scriptures would portray our growth in holiness as life being restored in us, as being returned to the, to the glorious one who is the source of all goodness and joy in life, being restored to him through the blood of Christ and being remade in his image. We're not learning to behave better. We're coming into our own as a species. So imagine that if every time we saw and sang of baby Jesus, each time we walk past the nativity, each time you turn on Magic 98.9 and you hear one of those songs again, what if we paused for a second and thought, God in his mercy and compassion and the son and his infinite love made our cause his own so that he could restore us to himself and welcome us into life and glory and joy forever and ever and ever. May we believe and rejoice in the everlasting wonder. Maybe we're here tonight and we have never professed faith in Christ. I would ask you to consider looking at the story and considering the story, considering the the truthfulness of the story and asking, what does it look like to respond with belief in this? Would you consider believing in Jesus and following and patterning your life after him and and seeing what we believe, that the Holy Spirit indwells us and works out his, his righteousness and his goodness in us? Could you believe 
Let us learn to see holiness and glory, uh, holiness rather, as glory being restored in us. May we, by God's grace, believe that when we talk about holiness, we're talking about goodness and a life that we want to live into. By God's grace, may we respond with hope, with joy, with faith in Jesus, the everlasting wonder. In the next few moments, we're going to sing a song, an old hymn called Here is Love. And there's this great line, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it says something like, God's justice and heaven's peace kiss in Christ. We see God's perfect justice and heaven's peace perfectly in tandem in Christ. Because God's justice is poured out on our sin in Jesus, but we are given heaven's very peace by Christ's sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we do come to you with gratitude in our hearts for the amazing story that is your birth 2,000 years ago and the familiar figures of Joseph and Mary and Bethlehem and the innkeeper and, and the, the, the wise men from afar, all of that. We, we look at it and we love it and we relish it and we pray, Lord Jesus, help us to see it as, as you would intend for us to see it, uh, as, a, as an opportunity to, to turn to you and worship, as an opportunity to be made like you. Lord, we pray that we would never grow cold to this season, that, we would, that for those of us who are super sentimental, we pray that you would make this more meaningful than just the, the, the cookies and the snacks and the presents. And for those of us who are cynical, we pray that you would break through the hardness of that cynicism and help us to see and rejoice in this. And we pray as I prayed before teaching just moments ago that, we would, that you would deepen our love and our obedience for Jesus and that you would send us out, out of love and fixation on him. I pray for our church family as we labor to look more like Christ and as we press in to growth and likeness to Jesus and growth and holiness, would you help us to see it as a return to what you have intended us to be, coming into our own as a species. And I do pray for anyone who was here this evening who has never repented, turned from their sin, believed in Jesus, who are wondering even what that even means. I pray that your spirit would operate and work in their hearts and open their eyes to see the the beauty and the glory of Christ. Pray all this in Jesus' name.